Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org. Join us now as Pastor Keith Moore shares today's message. We are um, starting our 2014 year uh, with a, a series of studies from God's Word that we're calling Working for the Good of All. And it is based on Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, the first Sunday back, we took a look at what the Scriptures say about working for the good of God, focusing on His purposes uh, this year. Last week, we opened the Bible to see what it had to say about working for your own good. And how to go about that. Today, uh, we're going to take a turn that's, I think it's gutsy. I think it's um, critical. I think it's strategic. I think it's doggone personally challenging uh, for me. And um, I'll bet for you as well. And it's working for the good of sinful and suffering friends. Friends who are sinful, friends who are suffering. Uh, The context is actually working for the good of brothers and sisters in Christ who are trapped in destructive sinful habits and, uh, and working for the good to relieve the suffering that comes as a result. Um, we got a barrier to that, and it's a big one. It's one of the reasons... Uh, that we've heard over the years, ah, the church is full of, yeah, it's, it's, I'm so sad you all knew the answer. And um, it's one of the reasons that that saying has such ongoing, persistent popularity in our, in our culture. There's a man by the name of John Burke. John is a pastor in Austin, Texas. I've never met John. I've read his books, and I'm pretty impressed. He tells the story in uh, one of his books about having a conversation with a, I believe it's a grad student at the University of Texas in a coffee shop there in Austin. And the young man wanted to speak about spiritual things. He wanted to know about the claims of Christ. And so they were having that discussion. And, And Burke writes in his book, That at each point, philosophically, theologically, biblically, uh, the young man agreed with everything he said about who Jesus was, why he came, why human beings have need of him, what he did, that he died on the cross, rose from the... The young man said, I agree. I believe all that's true. And so John was fairly excited about this, and he asked the young man, well, then, is there any reason you would not want to become a Christian? Would you like to commit your life to Christ? And he said, oh, no. Well, it took John back, aback somewhat, and he said, well, no, wait a minute, I don't understand. You, you agreed with me. You believed all these things. I mean, why wouldn't you want to commit your life in eternity to Christ? And the young man paused and said, well... I mean, no disrespect or anything, but I guess I just really don't want to be like you. 
Okay. I think that's our problem. How many, how many far from God people that you know, love, and like really want to be like you? I mean, really want to be like you. Want to be like you in your disposition and your attitude. Um, wow. I've been struggling with that all week, so I want you to get to enjoy some of the pain this morning. So I'm going to walk you through it. We, we find in Galatians chapter 5, verse 26, down through chapter 6, verse 5, a passage that uh, speaks to this issue. If you've got your Bibles, I hope you do, your hard copy or maybe a digital copy on your smartphone or iPad, go to the book of Galatians, way back over in the New Testament, about right there, Galatians chapter 5, the last verse in chapter 5, and we're going to walk through, uh, really down through verse 3, but uh, we're going to read all of this. So, follow along. Let me read this passage aloud for us. We must not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But each person should examine his own work, and then he will have a reason for boasting in himself alone and not in respect to someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Pray with me. So, Lord, we do pray that you now would open our minds and our eyes, that we may see wonderful things and understand these wonderful things in your word. We pray that you'd help us to put aside and, and all the things that clamor for our attention other than your voice through your word. And we pray that you would unlock that part of our personality that most directly relates to you, our hearts, our spirits, and uh, enable us to respond to you in faith. And may we be transformed. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Conceited people tend not to be attractive to others. Would you agree? Would you agree? Anybody here, when we say the word conceited, does anybody here not have a clue what that means? Let us not become conceited. Now, the context here, uh, the Apostle Paul, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, wrote this letter to the New Christians in all the new churches, that's all there were, in the region of Galatia. And he wrote them uh, primarily for the purpose of clarifying the gospel. To encourage them not to go back to trying to uh, be reconciled with God by keeping the moral and ethical laws given in the Hebrew Scriptures is becoming better and better and better, earning my way so that God says, yeah, now you're good enough. No, 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 no. To not do that, but yet live by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and live under the guidance of His Holy Spirit. Live by the gospel and live by the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Uh, be guided by the Holy Spirit. Let Christ's Spirit in us write His law on our hearts 
And, and he makes the case, and I believe it, that life in the Spirit is now adequate for knowing and doing what God wants you to know and do. And there's great freedom. He said it is for freedom that God has set us free. He set us free to live this magnificent life of freedom in Christ. Not freedom to sin. He says, no, 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 God forbid. But freedom to live uh, in response to God's Spirit as He leads us uh, to live according to the will and the ways of God. Leads us and empowers us to do so. And then in chapter 5, he contrasts what life looks like if we are sowing to what he calls the flesh or sowing to the Spirit. He says that uh, if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. He doesn't say we won't have any. He says we won't fulfill them if we walk in the Spirit. We're going to have temptations uh, to, to uh, the flesh. And it's, what's the flesh? He's not speaking there of flesh and bone. He's describing that part of a human being's personality that wants to be in charge that wants to do our own thing, go, go our own way instead of God's way, that wants to say, nobody's telling me what to do. It was illustrated most dramatically in one of my um, colleagues who was a youth minister. This young man was kind of rebellious, and he'd gotten get in trouble with his mom and daddy. Then he got in trouble with his teachers. Then he got in trouble with the principal. Then he got in trouble uh, with uh, the sheriff. That's the, you know, that is the way it goes. You know, you, God starts out with the people you love the most, and if you don't get it with them, he moves up, you know, the authority goes up and the love goes down. You understand that? Well, this kid was, he was bumping the door. And so they finally called in the youth minister and, and, and he said, listen, man, what is going on? He said, I'm tired of people telling me what to do. Nobody's going to tell me what to do any longer. I'm joining the Marines. <laughs> I'm telling you, if I'm lying, I'm dying. That kid really said that, really said that. But it's that part, but you know what? Let's just look around. It's just us in here. There's something in you and something in me that says, ah, nobody telling me what to do. I'm joining the Marines. We're about that smart about it. But it's that the flesh that I want to do what I want to do. I just want to do what I want to do. Not God, not, you know, it's, that's that part of us. And he says in Galatians five nineteen through 21, he describes what our life will begin to look like if we live that way, and it's not pretty, you can read it yourself. Then he says, however, if you live life in the Spirit, if you're walking in the Spirit, which basically means that you consciously, on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis, yield control of your life in eternity to God the Holy Spirit who indwells you, to His guidance and His direction, and He will empower us. He says, if you live habitually... In that kind of relationship with God, the, with, through the Spirit of Christ, your life will begin to, to take on characteristics kind of at the pace of delicious, beautiful fruit growing on a tree. There will be a bud, and then you'll begin to see it, and you can notice it, and then it's big and sweet and ripe. He, he called it the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all kind of things like these. He says, your life will begin to look like that. So then he says, those of us who are living life in the Spirit have put to death the deeds of the flesh. It means uh, uh, we, we're, we're constantly being aware and we're just, I've died to this. I'm putting this uh, away. Now, I said all that to say this. He says that, and then he says, now that you are walking in the Spirit... 
be sure that you do not become conceited. Now, that word conceited is a, is a word that describes a bellows. How many knows what, a bell, what bellows are? Yeah, not, not many. Everybody's in the front. Did, they, did y'all divide up the crowd that way? Nobody in the back aisle knows what it is. All you guys in the front. But bellows are those, I don't know how to describe them. I wish I had a picture. You know, those big things that blow air. Uh, and you can use them to, to, to heat up a fire or, or pump, up some, pump something full of air, a bellows. The word conceited uh, in the Greek language there is a word that was used to describe bellows, and it meant to be puffed up, to be blown up, uh, to be bigger than you are, to be, uh, the Bible even describes it as being, in other places, as being puffed up with pride. But it carries with it the idea of being puffed up with pride, but having absolutely no reason to be. Just puffed up. It's that thing, it's the thing we do it in our culture today, sometimes called self-talk. We believe that people's problems in our culture is that they have a poor self-image. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah, Bible doesn't believe that. Do you know prior to the 20th century and in our culture, most cultures around the world believe that people misbehaved because they thought too much of themselves. The Bible says that's true. Our, your problem's not a poor self-image. The problem is you're thinking to, about yourself all the time. Now, you may be mad, you may be angry, you may feel like a loser, but because you're comparing yourself to other people, how am I doing? I, I, you, got, you got eye trouble, me, myself, and eye trouble. We think about ourselves all the time. That's my biggest problem. I am selfish. I tend to be self-centered. Uh, we think about ourselves all the time. Now, I don't think I'm going to turn the whole culture around on this self-image thing in 20 minutes here this morning. But the Bible says we're to die to self. The Bible says our self is our problem. It, whether you feel you're bad and angry and depressed or whether you're way up here thinking you're superior, it's all the same problem. You're thinking of yourself too much. The Bible says uh, that we should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We, uh, we, sh- we are to love ourselves, but we're to love ourselves appropriately. We're to be humble. Humility, again, is not thinking less of yourself. It's just that you have been brought to a condition where you think of yourself less. You think of others more. You think of God and other people. Your natural disposition has been transformed so that your default setting is to think about others. Then you're in good shape. My natural disposition is to think about me. How you doing? It's problem. When we think about ourselves all the time, we begin to compare ourselves with other people. How do you know if you're conceited? I had a buddy in high school who used to say this tongue-in-cheek, but he did say it often. He said, you know, I used to say I was conceited and great. Now I'm just great. Uh, But do you know how you can tell if you're conceited? You're comparing yourself to other people all the time. How am I doing? How, How are they doing? Morally, spiritually, in any other realm of life, uh, we become conceited. Now, the only problem with comparing ourselves with other people is that, well, there are two problems. There are only two things that can happen when you are conceited, and both of them are really bad. And the Bible says it right here in verse 26. We must not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, 
To provoke one another means provoke. This word provoke means to irritate another. It means it has the sense not only of irritation, but it has the idea of, of throwing out a challenge, throwing down the gauntlet, of, of calling someone out. Hey, I'm calling you out, buddy. It, it, it's, it's got that kind of response. When we compare ourselves to others and then determine, hey, I'm doing better than they are. I'm doing better than he, she is. I'm doing, I am superior morally, spiritually to this person. The result is, is it provokes them to ill feelings toward us. It calls them out. It produces anger and hostility in other people toward us. He says, that's the first thing that can happen. We think we're superior and people are hostile to us. Second thing that can happen is we think we're inferior and we become jealous of them. We become envious of them. Uh, angry at their success. Why, why can't I have what they have? We lose our ability to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. If you find yourself either envying and jealous of others or you find yourself at any point, no matter what the other person is doing, with a sense of moral and spiritual superiority, eh, you're conceited. You're thinking of yourself. I'm thinking of myself. Only two things can happen and they are not good. It's a lose-lose situation. It's why the book of Philippians says this, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. When we become conceited, uh, we become unattractive to those outside the church. Would you, you think maybe? We become at best unattractive. And therefore we become judgmental. And therefore, we become angry with people who we deem to be messing up when we are doing better and hostile toward them, judgmental. We go ahead and pass verdict, condemn them to wherever we want to condemn them. And God says here in His Word, if you are walking in the Spirit, if I'm walking in the Spirit, I'll not go there. I'll not be that. It's one of the ways we know we're not living under the power and control of God the Holy Spirit is we stick our nose in the air and we can, hmm. But then he describes what we will do if we are walking in the Spirit and we, do, we refuse by the grace of God to be conceited. He says, we will restore one another and we will help one another. Um, when God sets us free by living in the Spirit, He basically says we will lovingly help sinful and suffering people. We will lovingly and forgivingly and humbly help sinful, suffering people. We will forgivingly and lovingly and humbly help, actively help sinful and suffering people. Look at verses 1 and 2. Of Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. That, by uh, by the way, is the good definition of conceit, thinking yourself to be something when you're nothing. 
So he says here, if, if anyone is caught in wrongdoing, we are to restore them. Uh, when he says they're caught in wrongdoing, this means to be taken unaware. It means to be trapped by. It means to be overtaken by. It means to be surprised by. Uh, it, it means that before they know it, they have been conquered by sin, uh, by, by transgression, by iniquity, by any and all kinds of wrongdoing. Uh, it, the meaning here is not that of detecting that another person is sinning. No, 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 no. The, the, the meaning here is of, of a person being caught by sin, captured by sin, uh, destroyed by, by sin because she has been unaware, because he has been unaware, caught off guard. It does not mean that we are catching people sinning. It means that sin catches us. It traps us. It ensnares us. It hooks us. It captures people. And, you know, sin does catch us. It's very wise. Just like fishing. Just like fishing. When you're fishing in the water and you uh, cast a good lure out there, a good bass lure out there, and it's got the, uh, got the skirt on it, and they pull it, and the bass starts chasing the skirts. Looks good, and then he bites it, and then it's painful. Well, sin starts out feeling really, really good. And it ends up feeling really, really bad. And it becomes a trap. It, it, it ensnares us. In fact, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 4, to the story of the first ever murder, first recorded murder in human history, uh, who murdered who? Yeah, Cain murdered Mumble. That's right, right there. Uh, Abel, yeah, not Mumble. Cain murdered his brother Abel. God saw what was going on in Cain's heart, and he confronted him in, cha- in verse 7 of chapter 4. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, if you do what's right, you'll be accepted, but you need to watch out. And he said it this way, if I can find my verse. He said, you better watch out. Sin is crouching at the door. It, its desire is for you. The Bible describes at times sin as a living thing, as a predatory thing, seeking to capture you and me. Now, some of you are captured right now. I mean, you, you, have, you have found yourself captured by um, habitual sinful behavior that is now a great burden, a great source of pain for you and the people around you. It's addictions to drugs and alcohol. It's pornography. Uh, it's, it, maybe you're into this a series of marital affairs or some kind of sexual immorality. Uh, maybe it's lying, cheating. Maybe you've got a gambling addiction. Uh, it's, it's anger. It's wrath. It's malice. It's slander. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But you find that you are there. You may even be in a prison of your own bitterness and you can't get out. You are trapped. You are held. You are powerless to get free from this sin trap that you are, you are in. Well, the Bible says here that those who are spiritual are to restore such a person. Now, who does he mean by that? Who is spiritual? Well, he's simply referring to Christians um, who are walking in the Spirit and are not currently in the grip of habitual sin. You know, he's, restoring, he's, he's referring here to restoring 
a brother or sister in Christ who gets trapped. It's possible, right? Yeah, sure it is. And so he says, you who are spiritual, who are walking with Christ at this point, you, you restore them. What does it mean to restore them? That word restore is a word that um, is used in, in that Greek culture. Well, let me, let me illustrate it this way. How many of you have ever broken a bone in your body? Raise your crooked arms. They got me. How about the balcony up there? Anybody broken? Not be good. See, y'all didn't know what, what they, nobody's broken an arm. There's one. Yeah. Broken bones, broken bones. Uh, when you went to the doctor, did, do you remember them setting the bone? How many of you remember that fondly? Not to, yeah, yeah. It, there was some hurt there, wasn't there? But it was hurt that heals. It was hurt that was intended to heal. It was, it was unavoidable, but it was meant to, to heal. For you see, uh, if a bone is broken in our body and it's not set, that, that limb, that arm, that leg will never function correctly again. It has to be set. The word restore here is the same word in that Greek culture that referred to setting a broken bone. Gently, uh, lovingly, graciously putting things right. Helping a person get back into a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and walking under the control of His Spirit. Whatever it takes to do that. But he says that we are to, um, we're to do it with a gentle spirit. You see that there in verse 1? Eugene Peterson translates this phrase as forgivingly help. Forgivingly help someone else. Uh, A gentle spirit is a person's emotional disposition. It's the condition of their soul. He says, do this with a gentle soul, with a gentle disposition, as opposed to a judgmental, hostile, angry disposition. I mean, this means acting in a manner that's mild and even-tempered, forgivingly, humbly, lovingly helpful. Now, how can we do that? Well, we need a cure for our conceit. If we are conceited, if we're judging others, we can't do that. We won't do that. The cure for conceit is the gospel. It's the only cure. You know, some counselors will say this today. You read the books, you go to counsel, and they'll say, well, you're prob- don't stop, qu- stop comparing yourself to other people. You set your own standards and live by those. That sounds wise, doesn't it? It's baloney. I discovered I set my own standards and I couldn't keep those. I mean, I violated my very own standards. I mean, or if you just set them so low, you know, you just feel bad about those. Any, anyway, no, 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 no. That's not the cure for conceit. The cure for conceit is the gospel. For in the gospel, we stop hiding from ourselves and from God and from everybody else We stop thinking that we're something when we are nothing and we admit that we are nothing. We admit to God that in our flesh dwells no good thing and apart from Him we can do nothing. We admit that we are sinful people in need of a Savior. We admit admit that we we are so sinful and wicked that we probably can't comprehend it and that there's nothing in us that would make God have to forgive us. There's nothing, there's nothing that commends us to God. And we admit it freely. Therefore, we stop hiding about it. Everybody knows it and who cares anymore? There's freedom in that. 
Yet when we admit our sin to God through faith in Christ, He forgives our sin. The way to be forgiven, the way to be fully accepted by God uh, and experience His love completely is to admit that you don't deserve it. To admit that you're a sinful person. We admit that we're a sinful person. And then Jesus says, Yay! There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. He completely forgives us. He declares us justified even though we're not. He commits us, he declares in his eyes, as far as we're concerned, legally we are perfect even though we're not. He treats us like we were Jesus because he treated Jesus like he was us. He gives us a home in heaven when we die. He gives us his Holy Spirit to come and indwell us, to transform us and guide us and and lead us. He adopts us as his child. He he blesses us with every spiritual blessing. This, This is incredible in the gospel We are radically sinful and completely loved. It sets you free to lovingly, forgivingly, graciously help everybody around. It sets you free to help people. There's no competition. I mean, if you got Jesus and he fully accepts you, who cares about anybody else or anything? You got got God. He's got you. It's the only cure for conceit. And when we get that cure, we are able then to, to see our brother and sister who has been captured by sin and to feel compassion rather than anger, to feel identification rather than judgmentalism. We, we come, we're able to forgivingly, lovingly, humbly come alongside them to restore them uh, because we, re- we realize how easy it is to get there. We realize how short a distance it is from where we are right now to where they are. Those who have been forgiven much love much and forgive much. And until you understand how much you've been forgiven in Christ, you're going to be conceited. So There. Yeah, and until until I keep and so, but but, I, but here's my problem, Bill. I keep forgetting that. And what I've realized I have to do is I have to remind myself of the gospel every day. I have to preach the gospel to myself every day. I pray it to myself every day. I remind myself, like the Apostle Paul in his writings to Timothy, who said he didn't say I was the worst of sinners. He said, "I am the worst of sinners." Present tense. Well, it didn't hold him back. The gospel set him free. I I say the Apostle Paul, I would argue he's one of the top ten, certainly. I might even argue one of the top five leaders and influential people in all of human history. He was go get them. He was relentless. And yet he says, I'm the worst of sinners, but completely accepted by God. It changes everything. And so we're able to come alongside and restore those who need restoring. Now, he says not only do we restore them, but we carry their burdens. Look at verse 2. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, a burden is heavy. A burden is onerous. A burden is, a, is a tiring. It is a heavy concern. It's, in this context, it means the burden or the suffering that a person brought upon themselves because of their sin. Now, we're to, we're, to, we're to carry everyone's burdens. 
But here in this immediate context, he's re- referring to here's someone captured in sin and they have set in motion a lot of suffering for other people, but certainly for them, they are suffering. Well, what are we to do? Well, you know, my natural tendency is probably the same one as yours. Hey, 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 they made their bed. Let them sleep in it. Hey, 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 you know what goes around comes around. You know what that's called? Being conceited. Judgmentalism. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. No, he, he says we, we, we see them suffering and we're to carry their burdens. Now, a burden by definition is heavy. I mean, you feel it when you lift it. To carry their burden means to stoop down and get under it, to stoop down and lift off some of the load, to stoop down and take some of the suffering on ourselves. We never carry someone's burden until we feel some of the weight that it costs us. It costs us some of our time. It costs us some of our attention. It costs us some of our energy. It costs us some of our sleep. It costs us some of our money. That's when you can tell you have carried someone's burden. It costs you because you feel the burden. So I don't like to do that. It feels bad. Well, yeah, it's supposed to feel bad. Nothing wrong with it. Burdens feel bad, but it makes them feel better. It costs you the time. So, you I mean, I got to go over and listen to them go through all this one more time, all this stuff. And so I just, it just wears me out. Well, good. Do it anyway. Yeah, because what? It makes them feel better. What are you doing? You are getting alongside them and letting some of the burden slide off on your back so that you're carrying some of that. Well, here's somebody, they got into all this mess and now they don't have enough food. And I got, I'm going to, uh, here's, here's the money I was going to spend to, to take a day off and, you know, go do something I wanted to do. But I can't do it if I give them this money for food. Yeah, there you go. Now you're carrying someone's burden. It's costing you. Until it costs us, I don't, we, I don't know what we're doing, but we're not carrying their burden. We might just be feeling badly for them. We wish that hadn't happened to them, but it's not carrying their burden. This is what real friends do. They lovingly forgive one another and they carry each other's burdens. It's a lot of work. Friendship's a lot of work. It's what Christian friends do. That is what we do. Well, pastor, how do I go about this? You know, when we're conceited, when we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, when we compare ourselves with others, we will inevitably become judgmental and unloving and angry um, toward believers who are caught in sinful habits, and we will see ourselves superior to them, and we will not want to help them with what they're facing at all. So, this passage goes on to say, carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see that in verse 2? The law of Christ, what does that mean? Well, the word law that is used there in this passage is a word that is sometimes translated pattern or example. He said, when you live, he's saying, when you live this way, you're looking a lot like Jesus. When you live this way, you are fulfilling the pattern of Christ. What do you mean the pattern of Christ? Well, he was the ultimate burden bearer. He's he was the He's the ultimate restorer. For you see, even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, the Scriptures say, Yet He Himself bore our sicknesses and He carried our pains. That means He stooped down and got along beside us and didn't just let some of it slide off on Him. He let every bit of it slide off on Him. 
But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way. But the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Jesus was the ultimate burden bearer. Rather than judging us in our sin, which he could have done, he said in the Gospel of John, I I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. I didn't come into the world to condemn you. I came so that you might be saved. So that in me, there will therefore now be no condemnation. When we, by walking in the Spirit, are no longer conceited, but instead forgiving, humble, loving people who seek to compassionately and with, with, with fear and trembling, watching out for ourselves lest we too be tempted, seek to help people get free from the trap of sin, whatever that takes, and get reconnected to life in Christ, and we lift some of the burden off of them, we look just like Jesus. And I think at that point, maybe we'll become quite attractive to those who now don't want to be like us. Pray with me. Let me just ask you a question. Some of you here are trapped. You're, you're a Christian, but you're trapped. It may be an addiction to alcohol or prescription drugs or pornography or some other thing. It may be the trap of bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. I don't know what it is, but you know you're trapped. Now, this is a little gutsy we're praying, nobody's looking around but me and those that are cheating. Um, if that's you and you'd like prayer, Pastor, I'm just trapped. I need help. Raise your hand. I'm going to pray for you, okay? Who else? Yeah, all over the place. Let me see. Keep them up over here to my left. Okay, over here on the right. Yeah, there you go. Good. Up in the balcony. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, golly. Wow. Thank you. That's good. That's honest. I'm going to pray for you in just a second. I would encourage you to cry out for help. One time my daughter, she's two years old, she woke me up early one morning and I could barely hear her going, help, help, help. I thought, what in the world? So I got up and went to her room and opened the door and there was her bed, but she was not in it. She's two years old. I'm just barely hearing this little voice, help, help, help. I'm going to start to get worried, got a little panicked. Has my daughter gotten up, got outside, what's going on? And then I, I thought... Her bed was up next to the wall, so I went over and peeked, crawled over it and looked over by the wall, and she had, in her sleep, rolled off the bed up next to the wall and, was, and got trapped. Face, she's hanging face down, but she was yelling for help, and she's able to get help. A lot of us don't know that you're trapped, so call for help. To some brothers and sisters around you. I'm going to pray for you. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are trapped. And I pray by the power of your Spirit that you would release them and set them free. And we commit to be a part of the answer to that prayer. Now, most of us are probably like me, and our problem is not that we're trapped. Our problem is that we're consistently conceited and comparing ourselves to others. If you need God's help and grace to get set free from your conceit like I do, 
Just raise your hand. I'm going to pray for you. I'm, I'm a con- so I am a conceited person. I compare myself to others. I look down on others and, I, and, and provoke them, and I look up at others, and I'm jealous of them. You got it? Anybody? Okay. Lord, I pray that you would uh, change us from the inside out by your mercy, by your grace, by the power of your gospel. Change us from the inside out. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. For more information about Dogwood Church, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org.